Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jess Beal Stahl. Jess, how are you? Good. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. I'm excited for our conversation today because one one thing I wanted to do when I started this podcast was to kind of bust or kind of attack some of the misconceptions that are out there in the performance world. And we're going to talk about hormones. And I don't know, this that's going to be top of the list, I feel like, of where people have misconceptions or just like these crazy claims that get made. So Definitely excited to talk about that. But before we get there, why don't you go ahead and tell the listener who you are, what your background is, and then what you are doing today. Yeah. So I'm Jessica Bielstahl. I am a pharmacist. I actually am a clinical sports pharmacist. I have a company called The Athletes Pharmacist, where I work with mostly high school, collegiate level athletes and improving their performance and overall health. I am also a pharmacist at a local community pharmacy where I serve as their director of clinical services and do compounding pharmacy. So I make hormones for people and vets and pets and all that fun stuff and all their wellness services. So hormone testing, genetic testing, point of care testing, anything like that. My background is actually I was a division one volleyball player, played and then actually got into competitive Olympic weightlifting. And now compete yes. nationally and internationally in Olympic weightlifting. So, yeah. and you're prepping for a meet now, right? I am. I have one yes. in four weeks. Oh, right. man, it's getting down to it then. <laughs> I know it's it's the it's the fun time that you don't you get to lose the volume and it's just heavy singles. <laughs> it just got... absolutely. <laughs> I like that time. Yeah, absolutely. What is it for Olympic weightlifting? Anything over four reps is cardio. Is that kind Anything of Anything over, yeah, basically. I was going to go with three, but I'll give weightlifters four. Three is for the full lift, for sure. Yeah. But like, yes. you know, if yes. it's like RDL or squat, I mean, four, four, five is getting a little dicey there. I'm out of breath. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, background in, in pharmacy. And, and where did you play volleyball? I played volleyball at University of North Carolina, Asheville. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So I have an undergrad there in Kemet. I did chemistry and biochemistry, so I'm a dork. Yeah, you're certified dork. Certified dork, yes. Sure. <laughs> That's great. We love those people on this podcast. Fantastic. Um, so, okay, so one thing you didn't mention was clinical sports pharmacist. Yeah. This is probably, I guess, in, at least in areas that I follow and look at, this seems to be a quickly emerging area and not one that historically I had ever really thought of a pharmacist as being in the space. You think of dietitians and nutritionists and things like that, but then pharmacists, I feel like it's growing. And when I I thought about it, and and then I think anyone listening to your background, chemistry, biochemistry, pharmacy, it does make sense, particularly when it comes to medications, obviously, but then like dietary supplements and like the crossover there. But then obviously, we'll talk hormones today. We know that our diet and the food that we eat can impact our hormones, both chronically and acutely. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Like pharmacists have the education in the background to really honestly fill kind of a gap. I like 
I don't know how you think of it, but kind of almost between the dietitian and doctor, or I guess I'll let you explain how you see it or what it's best thought of. So just go ahead and explain like clinical sports pharmacist is what they do and like kind of what all falls under their purview and practice. Yeah. So it's been around a little bit longer than most people think. It's been more internationally and internationally you see sports pharmacists mainly defined as anti-doping experts, making sure you're not taking a banned substance, helping with like therapeutic use exemptions, that whole area of just anti-doping. So it's really big in like Japan, Australia, Turkey have some of the bigger sports pharmacy programs. The beauty in the United States is that pharmacists have a much larger scope of practice here in the U.S. And so that allows us to be able to, along with the schooling that we go through, understand like lab work, hormones, how drugs impact not only side effect wise, but could be performance wise, what side effects to expect and different things. We can also have a background in basic nutrition. I know a lot of sports pharmacists, including myself, have taken additional courses in nutrition. So that mm-hmm. kind of helps beef that up. But at no point am I like trying to be a dietitian. I'm like, I kind of, like you said, act as a liaison between PT, MD, dietitians, athletic trainers, sport performance, and kind of, we understand how the medical side works and how the yeah. meds work, but we also understand how the supplements work and yeah. trying to kind of just be that in between. Yeah. And so talk about the scope of practice thing a little bit, because I have a master's in nutrition, but I'm really not from a practice standpoint. It doesn't really allow me to do much more than if I didn't. I, I just have a bigger knowledge base. Like yeah, beyond general health and performance, I legally can't really do a whole lot. But now pharmacists, their scope of practice is expanded. Yes, you're not a dietitian, but that gives you You said you compound hormones in your practice. I believe there's also, this is state by state, but you can prescribe medications as well. Is that correct? Yep. And like, that's beyond what a dietitian, right? Yes. I will. One good thing came out of COVID. It did shine that pharmacists actually can do a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank one of the positive things. So most people think of pharmacists as obviously picking up their medication. We're actually trained to give immunizations. In some states, you can give more than immunizations. You can give IVs, insulin shots, allergy shots, different things like that. But a lot of states have now expanded to kind of make up for the lack that they are seeing of primary care being coming up through the medical field. And they're finding that pharmacists can act as like a mid-level practitioner, similar to maybe like a nurse practitioner or yeah, that's, a that's PA. where my mind went for sure. Yeah, yeah. So under a protocol written in partnership with a physician, I in the state of Florida, and there are, I think, 12 or 15 other states now that are allowing pharmacists to prescribe. And each state is different. Like sure. we can prescribe for like flu, strep, covid motion sickness, UTIs, cold sores, like different things that you might think. I usually tell people, if it's something you might go to a walk-in clinic for, it's probably something a pharmacist may be able to prescribe for. So those non-emergent, very kind of acute conditions that, so they're allowing pharmacists to do that. We can also 
depending on things, we can look at labs and we can't diagnose them, yeah. but we can help you understand them, what's going on. And we can also, and in our community, have a very good relationship with the providers. So we're able to send recommendations over. I talked to Ms. Jones. I saw her labs. Have you considered optimizing this or looking at her medicine? They deplete this. This level is suboptimal. Would you consider this supplement or this yeah. prescription? So yeah, yeah it, they're expanding our practice, which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's great. A lot it, more clinical. I love ho- it. Ho- I mean, yeah. And hopefully it just helps us serve the athletes yeah. better and serve our clients, yeah. serve whoever we're a few can build a network with personal trainers. I feel that it's just like another key player in the team that can help people get results and get healthier and and elevate their performance. So talk about just like some of the like consulting that you do or some of the consultations that you do with clients and athletes, because that's a part of what you do as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So a lot of pharmacists can do, we'll do private consults with athletes with patients trying to help optimize so we may look at in honesty look at a whole scope of things so it's going to be looking at like nutrition sleep what medications they're currently taking what supplements they're currently taking and then it's really starting to dive into what are their major symptoms what are they what's going on and how can we start optimizing or making some changes in their lifestyle or medication sometimes I have athletes come, a lot of mine are female athletes. So just, I was a female athlete, I yeah. understand. But yeah. I have a, being in a compounding pharmacy, I've done years of work with hormone therapy and done mm. a lot of extra training. So I understand like women from, I have high schoolers all the way up to postmenopausal women and understanding trying to what's going on with their body because a lot of times, unfortunately in our healthcare system, they're told they're okay, but they don't feel good. They feel like their performance is going down or they're just not themselves. And so being able to help look at these small nuances that are maybe affecting them as athletes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good segue to the episode two of the hormone topic. So yeah, so talk more then about the hormone testing that you do or that I guess athletes have access to through, through you. What is it only specific select hormones or what are you able to look at? And then we can dive into some of the things that you've seen. So in recent years, there's been a much larger availability of hormone tests. So I'm sure most people are very familiar with like Everly Well or any of those at-home tests that are advertised. Like you can get your vitamin D tests, you can get your cholesterol, you can get your hormones. You can have a sleep panel that may include a variety of five or 10 different things or a weight management one. So athletes and people in general have a lot broader access to be able to test what they think they might need. We also have the ability to work with a provider and order like your traditional blood test, anything that's available. And there's also some newer tests out, especially for hormones. They look, there's a couple that look at saliva tests, some that look at urine metabolites. So depending on, a lot of it is depending on what you're looking at with the patient or working with, you may pick one over another. Some of it goes to cost. So yeah, there's a lot of options out there, which I think 
is amazing for the patient or the athlete, but it also allows you as a provider or somebody that they trust to be, they can give you that information and you're like, what do I do with it? <laughs> like, <laughs> how, how do I interpret this? Like yeah. you can't, and I don't think you can always, and you definitely can't always go by like green and red. This is good. This is bad. Like you really have to know, especially in like your females, like where are they in their menstrual cycle? What's going on? What are they training? Are they in season, out of season? Um, How old are they? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, it's amazing, but you also with, you also gives you more responsibility. And so knowing that you may not know everything and looking for additional courses yeah. is something that's super helpful, I think. Yeah. Cause like my question is, do these services like Everly Well or any other like order at home yeah. service, do they take that next step? And if they do, is it just generalized? Oh, your range is this. So that means this. Yeah. Like yeah. we know that's, usually not very useful. And no. <laughs> to your point, it's probably going to be done multiple times over the course of what, at least several months. Yeah. Yeah. I usually, I usually, I like to have athletes. If I have an athlete, I like to have them at least get a baseline in the off season. And then so that we know when they are ideally rested, well fed, not maybe if they're on a weight cut sport, they're slightly at normal body weight and being able to take that as a off season baseline. And then, so if I need to grab labs throughout the season or they start com complaining or having symptoms or having changes in performance, we have something to compare to. Yeah. So it's something you do have to monitor because they're going to change all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but the test, as far as I know, that at home test, they will give you results, but most of them don't go any further than that. They'll just be like, here's the number, here's a range. And as you and I know that those ranges are not always optimal for athletes, especially. So you can't just look at it and be like, I'm fine. Like that. Yeah. There's a lot of working pieces there. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and the practitioner, the practitioner is going to hopefully work to understand the broader context of everything. Yeah. Right. Not just look at the number, which is probably why it's so critical to work with a, a sports pharmacist or a trained dietitian or a trained mm -hmm. medical professional. And I, I feel like the word trained medical professional, just trained. Cause like a lot of this is just not going to be part in, in large part to classical education. You no. even said yourself, you've got to go get additional education. Training. I took an endocrinology class in graduate school. It, it didn't, I mean, all this was the basics, right? And this is yeah. grad, grad school, not even. So if I wanted to learn that more of it, one class alone probably isn't enough anyway, but like if I wanted to learn anything that I could actually use with my athletes or with anybody I'm working with, I would have to seek out additional, additional education. So yeah, for sure. I think, I think like you said, it's really, it's really, it's not a end all be all for anybody. It's if you get an MRI, it may show something, but is that really the cause of the pain there? It's a piece of the puzzle that may be able to help guide you. And it, you can use it in part with what, how are they sleeping? How are they training? Where are they? And I may have an athlete at the very end of season that has low iron and you're like, okay, well, how many more weeks do you have? Okay. We're not going to start iron supplements or we might start them now, depending on if we have one or two weeks left and then we'll kind of deal with it and reassess things. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's like you said, it's not, it's not the only answer 
to what's going on. It's a piece of the puzzle, an additional tool in your toolbox. And I think an additional relationship uh, as a provider for yeah, athletes yeah. that you can have. I mean, I'm super grateful when I can call a nutritionist or a dietitian that I know and be like, hey, can you help me with this athlete? This is beyond my scope. I need a PT. I need a pelvic floor PT for an yeah. athlete that's I'm having trouble. This is really like bothering me. And I'm like, hey, let me get you a pelvic floor PT. So I think having yeah. that relationship is really important to know where, when to, to refer. So I want to ask just about the functioning of hormones for a second. Yeah. Are hormones typically reactionary to something or are they the cause of something? So if you're looking at something, you're seeing low testosterone in men or yeah. something that's going on with menstrual cycle hormones that's out of whack. I think people are some, like, especially the, the quote unquote balance hormones. Well, I, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll let you to answer that because that's where I think some of the confusion lies. Like, does the hormone, is it going to be a reactionary to something? So if you see something going on, that's always the symptom or more often than not the symptom, or is it the other way around? What is your experience with that bit? So my experience is often hormones are a imbalances or reaction to something, but usually the hormone symptom is the what the patient is reporting as the irritating yeah. cause. Yeah, they're, they're, due, so due they're to usually, the wacky hormone levels, yes. that's causing yeah. the symptom. So they think it's their my testosterone's low. I'm, I'm losing muscle mass. I'm not performing well. My testosterone's low. They think that is the cause when really it might be you're overtraining or you're not eating enough or you're super high stress and you're not recovering or sleeping. That's causing the testosterone to be low, but they see it as my testosterone's low, not the, not what's causing the testosterone. Yeah, the underlying yeah. cause. Yeah. It's almost like if your joints, if you, it's, I almost think it's like analogous to if you have a joint that hurts, look above and below the joint as well as the joint itself of where the issues Correct. lie kind of thing. It's not yeah. always the thing. So if your back hurts, yes, you might do things that alleviate the back pain directly. Okay, what's going on with the thoracic spine? What's going on with the knee and the ankle and those types of things you have to consider as well. So I just feel like that's a good thing to kind of like frame maybe some of the things that, that go on. So let's talk about some of the things you see in your when in your work with your athletes and your clients. So what are some of the main... I guess you could say issues regarding like hormone related factors that you've seen. And I guess as much as you can, this is going to be purely educational. And I do have the disclaimer at the end of every episode. These are educational podcasts. They're not Perfect. meant to be prescriptive in any way, but if you can educate what might be going on in some of these scenarios. I'll kind of go through my spectrum. Yeah. I, as again, I get mostly females. So my younger females, most of the stuff you see with hormones is just them, their body starting to get regular. So you see a lot of like confidence issues, a lot of like changes in their joints and their like just kind of coordination and they're not confident. So I think as you have your younger athletes, being able to support them as their body changes is going to be huge and giving them 
positive like body image because they're that's a huge thing for my young athletes is yeah. they're like oh i'm so goofy i can't play sports anymore i'm scared to if i have my period in the middle of a game like what's going to happen is someone going to see it so my young athletes it's really helping educate them that having a period is normal their body changing is normal and like really supporting them through the foundations of eating and sleeping and all that as i start to get like my high school and college athletes so two things I see very commonly are loss of period completely or extremely long cycles. And so that is often your typical kind of like low energy availability reds, which you guys have talked about on the spy cats before. And I will tell you, I was never taught that in pharmacy school. It's something or even talked about when I was an athlete. So making sure that your athletes educated on it and kind of understand that Having a period is normal and you should have it and having not having one is not normal and making sure that as a coach, that may look different being a male coach versus a female coach and how you relate with your athletes. And so as you, we've talked about that, so <laughs> but I think if you're a male coach, just understanding what's going on and that your athletes can be at all different parts of their cycle yeah. and little things that matter. I, we are talking to a coach and he's, I don't I had a team that I was working with and they picked white pants. Their uniforms were white. And I was like, could we go with like gray or black? And I don't understand. And I'm like, yeah. So, I mean, it was like little things like that you wouldn't think of, but I think making sure coaches understand what's going on with their female athletes. The other thing you see with a lot of like high school, college students is starting to see PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is either what you see is either high, higher than normal testosterone levels in women. Oftentimes you'll find this more in my strength athletes and more explosive sports tend to, you see these athletes excel in these sports, which makes sense, but they tend to also have insulin issues. Another hormone that we like is high. They have tend to have high insulin. So you may see a little bit of extra body weight or just struggle with weight issues, but that starts to play a part a role later in life because you can also end up with fertility issues. So so briefly explain what's going on with PCOS if someone's unfamiliar with just like oh. the mechanism of, the, of that disorder. Okay. So PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome and it has three prongs. You have high androgen, high insulin, yep. and you can have ovarian dysfunction. And usually that appears as cyst in the ovaries, which is very painful and they can rupture and cause problems, but they're, it's definitely very painful. Your ovaries get swollen. What really happens is those, the egg that your body releases does not actually implant or does not get released. So you don't make enough progesterone. Mm -hmm. And then you just kind of do this vicious cycle of higher insulin, higher testosterone. You don't produce the egg. You don't make progesterone. Yeah. And because you're not. Is it the corpus luteum? You're not getting like a true yes. corpus luteum because that's the progesterone. Your endocrinology teacher well, would be so proud. Well, of I have to, I have two kids. So I've been through some of that. So my, yeah, I mean, when my wife had to have this may be a little TMI, but my wife had to have regular monitoring to, to determine if she was in fact releasing an egg. So yeah. we went through no, all that it's stuff very, for sure. Yeah. It's very common and most people don't realize it until when they start to have kids, maybe that's when they're diagnosed. And then they look back and they're like, oh, I've had it my whole life. Yeah. You'll also see like cycles that are irregular. 
or very long because they're not releasing an egg. So that typical hormone cycle is either prolonged or just not regular because that egg releasing is kind of like your trip of how your hormones roll. Yeah. So from a, so particularly the reds situation, and I guess Mm -hmm. before I go there, I'll point listeners to my, our episode with uh, Abby Smith Ryan, where we talked about some of this, but then also Jill Lane, who specifically talked about Reds. If you're curious about some of the episodes that, that Jess mentioned. Now, with Reds, do you, you probably don't necessarily need a hormone test to kind of identify for sure, or like at least, I don't want to say treat, but address what's going on. How about PCOS? Is there something that should there be some actual testing there? And then, as far as addressing it, that's pretty much out of would be out of the traditional like scope yeah scope or the of the sports performance practitioner or the personal trainer right yeah i i think so with reds like you said there isn't really a i mean there's tests they're going to test calcium they're going to do a lot of tests but there's like your hormone levels are usually going to be suppressed known in reds mainly because your body is choosing to try and survive over reproduce so your body chooses that survival mechanism and suppresses hormones. So reds, there's not really, if you have it or they suspect it, you don't have to do the hormone test. Like yeah. they're going to be suppressed. Yep, for sure. And not having a period, you're like, something's not regular. So it's not really worth it until you start getting your cycle back normally to be like, okay, let's see where we are now. Gotcha. PCOS definitely can benefit from having hormone testing done. So looking at like progesterone, estrogen, their ratios, testosterone levels, and insulin levels. And I like, I know a lot of people are like really big on glucose. I like fasting insulin, not fasting blood sugar, but fasting insulin, Mm. because that starts to show before you see high blood sugar sometimes. Yeah. And I think with, as a performance coach, if you have a PCOS athlete, and you're working with them, especially on their diet, it's really helpful to know that they have PCOS and they may have issues with carbohydrates. So understanding the relationship of, hey, I have an athlete with PCOS, they may have trouble with carbs. So looking at how you program or recommend their diet may be helpful or just little tips. Like I usually tell my PCOS athletes, don't ever have naked carbohydrates, except for Right before, you know, the, yeah. the hour before you practice, because you're about to go practice, you need that energy. But the rest of the time, pair it with something because you're probably have some level of insulin resistance in there. Yeah. And that, yes. that's kind of a crazy situation. I'll probably move on after this, but well, it's just, it's such a weird or not weird. It's just, it's interesting to me because I think yeah. if you think about your classical, if someone has higher levels of circulating testosterone, mm-hmm. and particularly if they're a male, they're going to exhibit or have more of, I guess, your classical male characteristics, very muscular and lean, which would indicate insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. But PCOS have high testosterone paired with insulin resistance. It's just mm-hmm. like, you're almost like battling yourself a little bit. You are. Yeah. You are. It's crazy. I, mean, I yeah. know you talk to men and they're like, I want higher testosterone levels and women are like, I need them, but only to a certain yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah i think there's a very fine line and there's obviously a lot more deeper to go into PCOS, yeah for sure but, but that it's the awareness thing yeah for sure yeah. yeah definitely something to be aware of 
working with your female athletes. So then, so let's go ahead and go to the testosterone thing and and yeah. men, if men, if we and can, men? if that's something. Yeah. That, yeah. So, I mean, this is a becoming a hot, pretty hot topic too with HRT and. There's ads on TV for low T all the time. Or just yeah, the radio for the even wow. Or just clinics like Limitless Male. Yeah, are, I think are popping up more and more. And how much of this have you worked with? What have you seen? And I feel like this is one that, as a man or as a male, I feel like we were kind of talking out there about maybe they're less apt to seek out help or seek out assistance. And this one is interesting in particular because the symptoms, and correct me if I'm wrong, might kind of, they're so similar to if you don't sleep well or don't eat well or don't just generally take care of yourself. Correct. Okay. So then there's one of two things that I think happened. If you're not doing it, some people just go straight to the low T. Like, oh, it must be low Correct. T when they're not. It must care be low T. Thing. Then if you are someone who takes care of those things and you're still getting symptoms, you're like, well, I can't be low T because I take care of everything. So what's going, what have you seen with that yeah. dynamic and what have yeah. you learned over the years? So I see this frequently. I do a lot of testosterone for men, especially in the pharmacy, but also with some athletes understanding like what's going on. So you, like you said, you really have two camps here. You have the first that are like, they're not doing the recovery, the eating right, the sleeping, and their low testosterone is their body in this fight or flight and trying to preserve. And yeah. so you're getting low T again as a result of not eating well, not sleeping. A lot of people don't realize like at when you sleep, testosterone is released, growth hormone are released. So if you're not doing that, then you're probably going to have lower levels. So you have that crew that really needs the like, we need to focus on the lifestyle and the foundation. Because even if you give them testosterone, it's still not going to be as effective if they're not willing to do the work on their sleeping habits, their training habits, their recovery and their nutrition. Right. So kind of have to have that like hard talk with them of if we're going to do this, you also have to make changes elsewhere. Yeah. You do have those that are doing all the things right <laughs> and they're trying. They still have low testosterone. Sometimes I have seen that as a result of just training constantly. So overtraining or just high levels of training and under eating or just not realizing how much more they need to eat to fuel their body. Yeah. And sometimes it's weight class athletes that are like super low fat and not realizing that they might need, we might need to kind of mess with their macro ratios and get them a little bit more fat for just yeah. an extended a, a period of time to let their body start to produce more testosterone. Yeah. Based on what you just said there, that, that seems like a young athlete. Yeah. Twenties, like collegiate high school athlete. Are we talking that young where you've seen some of these yeah. issues? Yes. Wow. I have definitely seen it in late. I would say the youngest is probably a senior in high school. Yeah. And then mostly collegiate athletes to post-collegiate and like that post-collegiate semi-pro kind of level yeah. where they really are just pushing and pushing yeah. and haven't taken an off season yeah. or maybe at this point after college don't have the resources or the money to afford dietitians and all the coaches that they had when they were in yeah, college and they're sure. trying to manage it themselves. So, so in that case though, it would still be, a, there would still be a situation where like a base 
performance found like factors not being taken care of properly, although unintentionally. It's not, they're trying to go for high performance. It's just not doing it fully. How about someone who by all intents and measures is doing something right or all the things right, like their macro, like their balanced diet, it's varied, lots of colorful fruits and veggies. Calorically, they're fine. Their training is, makes sense. Not like, it's not too low, but it's not like crazy by any means. Sleep seems to be okay. Where do you go from there? if you do see something like a low testosterone? Usually we start diving into labs a little deeper yeah, and trying to see, I mean, sometimes it's been, I've had one or two that had a history. They were older, but they had a history of like steroid use when they were younger. And oh. it finally came up of, Hey, it's impacting my testosterone levels now. Yeah. And so it's kind of, they don't think about it. Cause they're like, I did that when I was 19. I did, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Like, so I did it when long, I, yeah, like, so long, yeah. and I'm now 27 or 28, and they're like, wait, why do I have both testosterone? So I think it is at that point, it is a deep dive into looking at some labs and really kind of going into a history as to what yeah. what's going on and being honest, making yeah. sure they're being honest. Yeah. And I also want to make sure that I, say that low testosterone is not like one number, right? It's not no. even, is it even, a, is there even an agreed upon really other than if you're subclinical, which really low. And then also, if, as I understand, there's also variance in how people feel at different levels. Correct. Of, and then you also have to factor in bound and free, right? Bound testosterone Correct. and free testosterone. Free testosterone. So, okay. So yeah. There's a um, lot of, it's not just one number. And <laughs> I mean, if you take a lab, you can take a lab first thing in the morning. It's going to be higher than if you take it in the evening. Depends on your training. Dep- there's you can. I have seen people kind of manipulate when they get their lab to make it either be lower than they expected, uh, so they can get teeth. Yeah, but yeah. So you do have to look at it with more with a bigger lens than just one single testosterone number. Like you said, there's bound, there's free. So testosterone for most people. Our hormones, if they're bound, they're inactive. And so you will need, you have to look at how much is bound, how much is free. Yep. And th- things impact the glo- globulins that bind the testosterone. So you have that to play into a fact. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Which is, again, kind of goes back to a point of it's probably not just one time and how you do it no. and when you do it matters. So outside of maybe like a history of steroid use, <clears throat> Is, are there any other like maybe external factors that come into play when it comes to having like testosterone issues? I usually find stress levels, like constant stress levels. Are you in that constant state of fight or flight, whether mm. it's training, whether it's trying to balance training and work or training work and family or whatever those things are that you are involved in during the day? So stress is usually probably the number one thing that I find. And then some of it is they're, they may be, I have patients that are low, but don't have symptoms. And I have patients that are still in like the low end of normal and they're symptomatic. So there's people's bodies are used to a different number. So what may be normal for you is not normal for me. So I think some of it has to do with, are they symptomatic? Cause you can look at it and be like, you're not symptomatic and you're slightly low. Do we need to do anything at this moment? 
And are there situations where you have done something and there was no change or would someone who may be asymptomatic and low, even when they elevate their levels, they do improve and they're like, oh yeah, I guess I felt worse than I thought. Yeah. So depending, oftentimes if they're subclinical, if they're low, we will usually treat because there is a host of other things that can go start to slowly build up metabolic disorder, cardiovascular risk, all of those. And those progress slowly over years. So it's not like my teeth low today. Next week, I'm going to have a cardiovascular event or I'm going to start gaining weight. It's going to be this slow progression. So at some point, yes, we do treat. And then oftentimes they do come back and be like, oh, I feel better. I have more energy. I didn't realize this. It's usually a slow progression down. And so so they're like, they don't realize that they're not feeling as optimal as they did two years ago or five years ago. Yeah. And they usually account for, I'm older. Yeah. I now have a job. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm playing two sports instead of one sport. I'm not 18 anymore. There's a lot of, oh, it's just this and cast it off. Yeah. Which I mean, sometimes is valid. I mean, but I'm actively trying to break that mold. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean... (laughs) I will say for a lot of people, they get really frustrated because they don't feel like they used to. And when you go sometimes to some healthcare providers these days, it's, well, your labs are normal. You're fine. And I'm like, no, I don't feel good. Like I'm not performing like I used to. And they're like, but you're not. Yeah. I think our health system does really good at acute conditions. You broke the leg, you have an infection, you have this, but like this, hey, I'm not completely right we just don't have time to well the traditional healthcare model doesn't have time to spend on that so it's making finding those people on your team that can help you break this down and be like okay how can we optimize this because you're not optimal you're normal but you're not optimal yeah for sure it's yeah there's a difference between yeah it may may not be what you used to and feeling feeling crummy there's yeah but i will say i mean i feel like for men in in particular i mean i guess i everyone it's hard to know what that is. It's hard to admit what that is or find what that truly is. So what, what are some other hormone-related things that you've come across that you've seen that would be good for sports performance practitioners, nutritionists, personal trainers to be aware of? Yeah. I'd say the other one that I see very commonly more so now is low thyroid. So hypothyroidism, your yeah. thyroid obviously can be high or low. So high, you usually tend to see like sudden weight loss. I mean, weight loss, heart racing. Like you just think of your body being amped up. And that's much, much less common than hypothyroidism where your body is just slowed down and sluggish. But there has been a dramatic increase in the amount of patients being diagnosed with low thyroid, especially females in the recent years. And they're really not 100% sure why all of it a lot of it's autoimmune but they are seeing a lot more in females of this like low thyroid so sometimes when you see when you're seeing clients that are women and complaining of like weight gain and they're trying they're doing the diet they're doing the exercise it is sometimes worth making sure they get a full thyroid panel because again thyroid is not just one number there is multiple multiple points of thyroid yeah for (laughs) sure And so thyroid is probably one of the biggest thing, hormone-related things I've seen recently. 
low vitamin D, super easy to test. Low, I was, I will admit I was one of them. I was like, I don't know. I feel horrible. I feel awful. Something's wrong. And I went to my primary care. I was like, can we just run everything? And she, it came back and like vitamin D for athletes should be about 40 to 60. Some people like 50 to 70. And mine was like 18. I was wow. like, oh. Like while you've lived in Florida or when was yeah. this? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I okay. was in Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally in Florida. Huh. And I'm like, I'm like, a, am smart. I understand my body. I know some things are up, but it was like, oh, vitamin D level. Way to go. Just go outside more. But it's this stuff and you like you, but you don't know what's causing it. And yeah. so, I mean, vitamin D tests are super, super easy to get yeah. and something you can have an athlete look at, especially if you're a Northern athlete, an indoor athlete, if you're like, one of those people that work and then go to the gym inside and you're not really seeing the sunshine, especially in the winter, those levels can change dramatically. So yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm hopeless here in Northwest Iowa and it's <laughs> beginning of January. And, and this is something I, when I taught nutrition, I would, was really mind blowing to, to my students. And I guess I didn't even really know it until I taught the class, man, if you're above really Really, the the southern border of Iowa, Iowa might be where the cutoff is. Almost, if you're okay. north of that in the United States, all the way across, if it's like between, I want to say late October to like really early spring, March. yeah, like March, April. Even if you're in the sun at midday, the rays are not strong enough to synthesize vitamin D. So it's a double whammy. You're a triple whammy, really. You're not outside. If you are outside, you're bundled. If you're, if you, and if you're there, the razor, you're not synthesizing any anyway. So that's yeah. a huge chunk of your year that you're not getting any vitamin D if, the, from the sun. So it's no wonder that we do have kind of chronically low vitamin D in so many people, but it's still crazy that it happens in these Southern states. That's a, I think it's crazy. I was going to say some of it, I'm the geeky one who did genetic testing. So some of it is genetic. I found out. Oh, okay. uh, I'm yeah. Like, I act slow, slow metabolizer from the vitamin D from the sun to the active form. And so the enzyme that converts, I have a really slow, it's like the rate limiting step for yeah. me. So no matter how much sun I get, I still, my body can only convert so fast. So okay. I found out that that was some of the reason. So you, would have like, a delay, oh. you would have a delayed yeah. elevation from sun exposure because that, that's a key bit difference between supplementation and sun exposure is right. your sun exposure has almost like tit- you could have a titration effect. It can kind of have this time release effect. It can control it where you don't get that step with supplementation. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's good. To, that's interesting to know. Because yeah. that's even on top of these other factors of, of like skin color. There's another factor Correct. In, in this. So we're thinking, gosh, even vitamin D, which seems a little more simple than maybe the others. It definitely, We've talked about genetics. Still- We've talked about uh, <laughs> where you live. We've talked about skin color. And if you're unfamiliar with the skin color thing, the more fair your skin is, you're, you more readily synthesize vitamin D from the sun. Correct. The more melanin you have in your skin, the darker it is, the essentially more protected you are from the sun's rays, which correct. good from maybe a skin it... health standpoint, not great for vitamin D. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But yeah, I was going to say vitamin D is one that is, I feel like if you're going to start with hormones, vitamin D is one that, but it plays such a big role and it's not just like the super easy one either. It's like, oh, it plays a role in your immune system, your mood and all of this stuff. And you're like, okay, never mind. It's not that easy either. (laughs) So I do want to go back to the thyroid before we wrap up. Yes. Are you seeing low thyroid in healthy 
a healthy population too? Like what, I feel like thyroid is so tied to a kind of an energy availability reds type situation and then iodine and, and other nutrients as well. But what, what is, is there, do you see it in healthy populations or is it kind of more something else is going on that's more of a disease state? So I see it in healthy populations. That is normally more autoimmune driven. Okay. Yeah. Autoimmune. So okay. Hashimoto's is yep. where your body kind of attacks your thyroid. And so I will see that more in, across the board. In females, definitely healthy, not healthy. Um, usually there's some type of like stress trigger that kind of kicks it off, but not always. In my other patients, I tend to see it in either slightly older where they're starting to have hormone imbalances already in their estrogen and progesterone. Usually that equates to also a time in their life where they tend to have high cortisol levels. Estrogen, testosterone, progesterone imbalances can also impact cortisol levels, make them higher. High cortisol, your thyroid absolutely hates. So higher stress, you also start to decrease thyroid levels. So you will also see patients that are high stress tend to have high, well, lower thyroid levels. Yeah. Stress is terrible, man. Like stress. Oh my gosh. Stress like ruins everything. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, I usually talk about this, like even in like businesses, sometimes they're like, can you just talk about hormones and stress? And I'm like, how long do I have? Yes. Oh, just that. Just, okay. Just, Just, just that. But like you and I were talking <laughs> offline beforehand, like you, you start, kind of have to look at even going back to that classic cholesterol to pregnenolone to ha- your hormone cascade. You looked at it when you were learning it and you're like, okay, yep, there's estrogen, testosterone. That's what I want more of if I was a guy. Okay. But most people overlook the fact that in that cascade is cortisol. And so your body will, will wants to make sure you have cortisol for when you get in those stressful situations. So. It will, it's smart. It'll divert from other ones to that. So it, and I remember when we were in, I don't even think it was pharmacy school. I think it was a course after pharmacy school that they started like talking about that. And I was like, oh, wow. Shocker. Like, how did I miss that step? I'm because in a textbook, it's just an arrow. He's like, it's just, oh yeah. Cholesterol, arrow, pregnenolone, arrow, arrow. oh, arrow. multiple arrows. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, that's simple. But the arrow, there's way more in the arrow than you think. You're like, oh, I need this later in life. And when yeah. I'm working with people, this is why I, this is what's happening. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. one little arrow. Yeah, exactly. So where can people, if they do want to learn more, if they do want to expand their education on this topic, where would be some places for, for professionals to look into? Yeah. I have found really good hormone courses. There's some functional medicine courses that offer hormones. Dutch, which is a hormone testing company, does a really good job of offering hormone courses. They will, I will, they are skewed towards their tests, but the foundation that they give you is really good. Um, ZRT, which is another testing company, they do the same thing. Gotcha. Tell you a really good foundation. I like those. I also use like A4M, which is American Academy of Anti-Aging. I think that's all right. Um, their program for hormones also have found very beneficial too. So and I've those are like, all. 
four or five different courses. Okay. And those would all be yeah. like, basically, if you pay for to take the course, hey, like if they're yeah. not embedded in like an academic program per se. No, no, no. I haven't taken any through academia, like a college. That I mean, do they I even exist? Anyone. That's my question. Does that even exist? No, not in pharmacy school. Like I know in pharmacy hmm. school, there's not a course on like hormone. Th- there's inter- like you said, you have endocrinology and you touch on it, but nobody went into depth of like, how do you help women in perimenopause when their hormones are all over the place? How do you help them? We went over like the women's health study that said don't give hormones, but now they're kind of going back and saying maybe that's not true, but give them earlier than later. And so how do you help menopausal women? How do you help guys that have low T? I don't remember the ads on TV when I was in school. Now they're everywhere. So the question is one, why is it so popular now? One, probably lifestyle, but also how can we help our patients without always giving medication. Right, I know I'm the pharmacist exactly. that said that. That said not always medicine. As we know now, pharmacists can do more. <laughs> they can do more. They definitely can so, do more. I hope this next question isn't going to open a, a can of worms and we're almost oh, out of time. But well you mentioned like the prevalence and lifestyle. So I was research assistant at Iowa State for two years and took course coursework in addition to what I was doing. I took the human nutrition researchers slash PhD students took in the vet school, we all took human phys together. Okay. Well, I would advance human phys. And so this was kind of a unique approach where professors would come in and, and take their area of expertise as part of the okay. course. It was not just one person to teach it. And one of the most intriguing parts of that class and any class I've ever taken, and ever since then, I've never seen a single thing about it was we had someone come in. I want to say she gave two or three lectures on endocrine disruptors. And I'm like, I've never heard of any of this. Like, why isn't this more talked about? But then I'm, my skeptical brain is, is this really that big a deal? Briefly, yeah. is it? A, is there something going on there? And then we're, when I say endocrine disruptors, these are mainly kind of seemingly inert things that are just in our daily lives or they're just embedded in our life. Like we can't, we can or cannot do something about some of them. Some of them is just the air we breathe, the environment we live in. Some of it's the products we choose to use. Correct. But these are well, these are identified in the literature as endocrine disruptors. They will mess with hormones and things like that. So are there any like ones that are like, yeah, we have pretty good evidence that these are probably no So there's a, they exist, definitely. So for people, you're talking about a molecule, a chemical molecule that looks similar to what your hormones are, and they may bind to the receptor so that your hormone can't bind to it. So it allows either more free hormone, so you have higher hormone levels, or they can also act like a hormone and increase the level. So depending on what they are, yeah, I mean, you have endocrine disruptors in soap. Anything, like you said, anything and everything, stuff you touch, stuff you breathe, stuff you put on your skin, stuff you wash your hair. So there's that whole movement. I mean, a ton of it is in on the foods we eat. You know what I'm saying? Like chemicals on the foods we eat. So a whole big push to make sure you buy organic food, wash your 
at least the dirty dozen, you know, making sure you have what you're looking at, what you're putting on your skin or washing your clothes with. We can't get rid of them. Like they're in our society. They're not going anywhere. A lot of it has to do with your body's ability to process them and clear them out. And so some of it is genetic. How well can you clear out these hormones or yeah. synthetic or identical disruptors? disruptors? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so if you look at it, you'll see a lot of information about is your body basically, are you pooping enough? Because that's how they get out of your system. So making sure that you're regular and that is one way when you start looking at like liver detoxification and clearing out hormones and endocrine disruptors and chemicals and anything like that, your body has to be able to process it through your liver and then get it out of your body. And if you're not going to the bathroom enough, yeah. your body can reabsorb it. And so you're not clearing it out. So you'll see a lot when you kind of dig into this one, making sure you try and limit you know, obviously buying organic or making sure you're using cleaner products that don't have endocrine disruptors in it. And then if you are making sure, like you said, you're eating vegetables that help clean your GI tract, making sure you're going to the bathroom once to three times a day, like little things like that can help. There's again, no way to get them out of the world. Yeah. But it's for sure. And that's, but that's, I've been like, okay, well, what the heck do I even do? Because they're unavoidable. So when you say cleaner products, are you referring to like actually cleaning products oh. or are products of a certain ingredient profile? Yeah. So you're going to see a lot of products without, so a lot of it may be fragrances and okay. there's a bunch of these chemical names that are like this long. You can't see it on the podcast. But they're really long. It's like, they're the really long. Index finger <laughs> to thumb long. Yeah. They're long. Tons of chemical names out there. So you're looking for stuff that doesn't have fragrance. I mean, the easiest step is avoid fragrances and dyes. A lot of those tend to be endocrine disruptors. And then you can kind of dive in further than that. But you often see plant-based products tend to be cleaner. But you can, there's a ton of websites out there that are like toxic-free products yeah. that will list. These are the products. These are better choices or healthier choices to make. Yeah. Um, over maybe like a specific one that you've heard. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I didn't intend to ask that, but when you, when I just like that kind of, I mean, man, it's just, it's weird. It's just one of those things that is like the rare instances. Oh, I have not had this. I'm in a PhD program. I've never heard, Nobody. never really officially heard of this in part of education and, and it was never returned. Okay. Well, that was kind of cool, but now it's just done. It's but, definitely real and yeah. definitely a whole world. And I think it endocrine disruptors, as we've talked about, the endocrine system is super complex and super, a lot of people, so a lot of people are just like, it's toxic product or it's something I want to avoid. And so I think the word endocrine disruptor, some people like make it into a different word because that it's just a big concept that people are like, what do you, I don't understand what that means. Yeah, so, that's the point. Yeah. Well, Jess, this has been a really uh, enlightening conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. So where can people find you? What are some things you've got going on that you want to mention? Yeah. So I'm on 
So uh, Instagram and on Jessica Beal stall. And I usually post a ton of like health related content and sport related content, medication, things like that kind of fit my scope of practice. Yeah. And then I am doing a lot of work with the sports pharmacy network, which is a interdisciplinary network. So it's not just sports pharmacy. We are partnering with ATs, PTs, MDs, PAs, dietitians, yep. athletic trainers, everybody to try and get an inclusive network where we can help support you with information that we know as pharmacists to help broaden your scope of practice, but also to make that connection as to being part of a team of athletes. So yeah. we produce like a month, a bi-monthly magazine. You can sign up for free and start producing more content this year on yeah. educational seminars. So yeah. yeah. You've already, I mean, you've already produced great content with the, the magazine. It, it's really cool. You've done probiotics you've done nootropics what are some of the other topics you guys have done so Concuss- far we did concussions yep, that's right yep. we've done recovery we've done supplements for ergogenics we the skin conditions and yeah. our next one is special population so, oh awesome yeah yeah so like it's again it's like a it's like a it's nutrition related but it's a little bit of a different point you can add your the things you've done clinically you can add the education that you've gotten so I think it's a really cool resource and I, I'm excited to see it continue to grow. So Jess, once again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.